Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Hi, Death, Sex, and Money listeners. It's Anna. And this is a special summer treat for you that's a little different and very meta. There's a new podcast series out called The Turnaround, and it's interviews with interviewers about how they interview. It's hosted by Jesse Thorne, who hosts the great show Bullseye and is the leader of all things at the Maximum Fun Podcast Network. His guests on The Turnaround have included Ira Glass, Errol Morris, Jerry Springer, Audie Cornish, Mark Marin, Susan Orlean, Brooke Gladstone, and me. So we thought we'd share that conversation with you. I talk about the history of the show, how I prepare for interviews, what happens in the studio, and why the rest of the team is always pushing for me to get more and more uncomfortable. And I also talk about maternity leave, because when I taped this, I was on maternity leave. My daughter was just a few months old. I set up a microphone, held her in my lap, and talked about interviewing. And the moments where she makes her presence known are some of my very favorite. So here it is, Jesse Thorne interviewing me about interviewing. Anna Sale, welcome. Thank you. Do you like that I said welcome because I have not actually, as of the time that we are recording this interview, named this show? (laughs) (laughs) It just felt hospitable. I wasn't judging. (laughs) If you have any good ideas, let me know. So your show, Death, Sex, and Money, is a very particular kind of interview show. And I thought I would ask you to describe it because it sounds like the kind of show that has a real tight, solid elevator pitch. It does have a tight elevator pitch, but I think it's actually much broader than than the way it sounds. The idea for the show when I pitched it was I wanted to have an interview show where you didn't skip over the actual meat of what I consider to be the things that actually drive our decisions in life, and that is relationships, money, and the fact that we're all going to die. So um, it's a it's a personal interview show, but I try to make sure that we don't skip over those parts and that I focus on those parts. Like if we're talking about a moment of career transition, I want to know how someone supported themselves when they made a leap, or if they had a huge change in their life, how that how that re, how that changed their relationship, for example. So, so that was the idea, um, and it's because everybody deals with death, sex, and money. So it's a show that you can interview people who are really famous, and also people who listeners haven't heard before. That's like private stuff, Anna. I know, but it's stuff that it's nice to hear other people talk about. Did you? Okay, so you were like before you started this show. 
with WNYC. You were a reporter, right? What kind of reporter were you? I covered all sorts of things um, for almost 10 years, just in, in public radio newsrooms, um, but mostly focused on politics and, and towards the end of my time, mostly political campaigns. When you talked to people in politics, did you ask them about things that were closer to what you do now uh, than the kind of I, things that we might have imagined uh, yeah, a political I did. reporter would ask about? Yeah, I mean, I, I did it in two ways. In one way, like covering elections is pretty much what I do now, because when you're talking to voters, you are trying to get at what are the the you know core hot emotional issues that are driving them to make decisions. So I had a lot of conversations with voters about whether they felt like they had enough money, you know, how their politics changed because they were now a divorced woman in their fifties and had to send their kid to school. Um, so, so my actually my conversations with voters were a lot like what death, sex, and money has become. Uh, my conversations with the candidates were not because as you might imagine candidates are trained to um not kind of go to vulnerable places um but i always tried like i i remember covering the new york city mayoral election and talking to bill de blasio about like how how he felt comfortable basically using images of his kids in his political campaign when he talked about how you know central his family was to his identity and his political identity whether he thought he was you know, putting them in some way, possibly in harm's way by putting them up for public consumption. Um, so those were the kinds of questions I found interesting as a political reporter as well. But when you're asking Bill de Blasio that question, and that was like a controversial issue in that campaign, I'm sure that that is a question that experienced politician Bill de Blasio anticipated, at least when it became a hot, hot button issue, and had an answer for. So... How did you reach anyone who was as trained as a politician and get them to talk like a, you know, like Normal a human person. being? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think it's all in the follow-up questions because you get the pat answer the first time and then you answer, then you say something like, but really, like, aren't, aren't you, weren't you afraid that it was going to harm your family? Or, or, you know, just like pushing and, and, and trying to bring it back to the most sort of down to earth dynamic, which is me thinking if I were in the position of this person, I would probably have this range of emotions. And I'm going to try to get the person I'm talking to to either, uh, you know, explore that with me or to say that my assumptions are wrong. It seems to me sometimes when I'm when I'm doing this, that if it's something that um, I actually care about the answer to and I ask in a very sincere way that reflects that that people almost want to like step up to meet that bar yeah I think that that's one of the uh, really important traits of an interviewer which is to communicate to the person you're asking questions of that you are sincerely curious and that there's a reason that you're asking them these questions because your interview is only going to be as good as the the person's willingness to participate uh, and you say step up but I sort of think of it as like you're kind of 
creating this together. You're saying, you know, with the start of every Death, Sex, and Money interview, I say, you know, this is what the name of the show is, but this is why we explore these topics. It's because these are things that everybody goes through, but also can feel the most isolated around. So I'm going to ask you about these things, but it's not just to be provocative. It's because I'm looking for places of resonance. And so I explain that at the beginning, and I think that does help sort of make the person I'm talking to feel more comfortable opening up because it's in service of something. It's not just me poking and, and, and trying to kind of expose. It's, it's more about um, exploring something together. Do people believe you when you say that? Um, I think so. <laughs> I, I think so. I mean, I also say, and if there's something I ask you that you don't want to talk about, you can say that. And so I think by giving permission to sort of, you know, not take away all their power, it feels um, more comfortable. And, and I will say, you know, my producers and I, we take it really seriously that we're going to treat these interviews with respect and we're not going to then have really kind of, um, you know, sort of tabloidy headlines like what we think, you know, we try to be sensitive to, to the stories that we're telling. To what extent, when you're going into one of these conversations, and many of your guests, though, by no means all of your guests are people from the world of entertainment. I just listened yesterday to a great interview you did with Titus Burgess. Um, I loved him. (laughs) I know, right? Gee whiz. Uh, Yeah, I would just marry him right now. Um, (laughs) Except I probably would get tired of all the singing. (laughs) As, As great of a singer as the man is, he loves singing. To what extent, because you're asking about such a particular thing and something that often people are uncomfortable asking about, do you know what's coming? And to what extent are you really flying blind? Uh, well, I think it's more flying blind when it's when we're talking to somebody who's well known, because most often um, when those interviews get scheduled, no one, none of my producers have had an opportunity to talk to the person ahead of time. You know, it's working through publicists and working through assistants and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, when I get into a room and I'm beginning the conversation and talking about what the show is and, and the kinds of things I want to talk about, that's our first interaction. So I can go in with a plan and the things that I want to explore, but, you know, I, I really have no idea how game you know, someone who's famous is going to be. Um, and sometimes it's incredibly surprising and satisfying how, you know, what they have to say um, and can go, the interviews can go places I never expected. But um, I would say with interviews with people who are, who are, uh, who aren't famous, you know, um, producers on the show get to talk to ahead of time and kind of get a sense of the story. So um, there's a little bit less of a question of like, what are we going to be allowed to talk about? Um, but still, I think the most interesting interviews preserve that sense of spontaneity and, and uh, you know, don't have that rehearsed feeling. So I try not to talk to anybody ahead of time before we're rolling because I like that, the freshness of, of that interaction. I'll tell you what, Anna. One time I interviewed Roberta Flack, mm-hmm. um, uh, my close personal friend, Roberta Flack, <laughs> and um, and uh, I'm not, look, I, I hope that no one will listen to this and think I'm speaking ill of Roberta Flack. But, um, you know, it was for a particular segment with a particular premise, which was the song that changed my life, this segment on my show, Bullseye. And 
my producers had like talked to talked to her and her people. She had picked a song to talk about, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. She got on the phone. She didn't want to talk about that song. She didn't remember picking that song. And she didn't think that the premise of the segment was appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you talk about instead? <laughs> I tricked her into talking about some, a song. <laughs> I literally, I ended up doing maybe a 45-minute interview with Roberta Flack about eight different things, one of which that I kept coming back to was this one Stevie Wonder song that at some point she admitted she liked. <laughs> <laughs> like, luckily, in the end, like, it all cut together pretty good. <laughs> and I didn't, like, uh, you know, I didn't misrepresent her or anything. But uh, I I know that sometimes when you're talking to a public figure, the extent to which they're on board might be different from a normal person who, in many cases, I'm sure in your show, has in some way like volunteered to be part of it, said to someone, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I've got this story, or been asked to be on it by someone that they know because one of your producers sent out an email to 40 people they know, oh, do you know anyone that went through circumstances like this we or don't whatever? Do that. We don't do that. We do ask you- all of our listeners. We don't have our 40 circles of friends. We try to make it broader than that. You ask everybody. (laughs) Yeah. But those people, my point being, are people who kind of know what they're getting into. They've they've chosen it. They're volunteering. Exactly. And uh, when you're interviewing someone with whom there's like a few levels of administration between you and them, uh, that's not something that you can count on. Like they are probably have they've agreed to uh, be physically there and do the interview. And they're probably not a jerk. Uh, at least in my experience, but uh, they might have other plans. So you said sometimes they really surprise you with how open and expansive they they are. Are there contrary examples? Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to get someone who's in the middle of a press tour, who's talking to reporter after reporter, about whatever their latest project is, it's hard to get them to get off their their talking points, the things that they've been saying over and over again over the last you know ten days. But that's why what we try to do is you know it's it's about giving giving yourself enough time to record and and saying you know so we have an hour to talk, just kind of prepping them to even you know it's when they sit down to recognize that it's you know a little bit longer than than what a typical interview might be for a for a short feature or a, a quick hit on live radio um, and then then I think it's really about it's like it's I, I think the word is like charm it's about how do you forge that connection and try to make your way in so you can have an interesting conversation and it's not always easy sometimes it starts with really sort of pat answers or um, the person you're talking to doesn't really want to be um you know spending a lot of energy exploring hard things um but again but the way i try to deal with that is like okay it's if i hit one uh one sort of roadblock and it's an area that's this some person is definitely you know doesn't feel like talking about it's about restructuring the question and seeing if there's another way into that particular angle or um moving on and trying to find a different way in i remember i was interviewing jeff daniels and he was in the middle of a press tour for his play blackbird 
which he was subsequently nominated for a Tony for. And he was in, he just talked to um, another show at WNYC and he went straight from that studio to my studio. And so he was really in that mode of, of explaining, you know, what the work was, how he felt about that particular play and why he was doing it. And, and that was that. And so it took a little longer to get to somewhere where he was saying something that I hadn't read in, you know, three press clippings that he'd done in the last two weeks. Um, and that place was, um, I asked him about, I'd read somewhere that he in his like forties had, you know, been back home in Michigan and had started writing plays and he'd written a play about his, uh, a play about a character who had a vasectomy. So I thought that's an interesting moment for him in midlife that he's writing a play about a man who had a vasectomy like what was going on in your life at that time and that I think that question sort of showed him number one that I had you know cared enough to look at his body of work and that also um, you know he was discovered he was game to talk about his vasectomy and why he got one and and why he felt like it was his job to deal with birth control after his wife had had three kids Um, and then we went on to talk about alcoholism and and how he'd gotten sober and then not sober and then gotten sober again and it turned into a pretty pretty good interview do you have like arrows in your quiver when you're talking to someone like if you run out of juice is there something in your head that you're like if this runs out i i i gotta ask him about this vasectomy thing uh-huh wait so what's your question like do you have like do you have like uh do you have like stuff to go to when you run out of juice yeah. I mean, that's where that's where the premise of death, sex and money is really helpful because I can come back to, you know, and as I told you, you know, the, the name of the show is death, sex and money. So I'm going to ask you about death. I'm going to ask you about sex and I'm going to ask you about money. And so then I will ask sort of big, broad questions about, you know, if there's someone in your life that's died, that's left you with regrets. And I ask about what sex is like at this point in, in their life, if they're in their 50s or if they're in their 20s. I ask about if they're making more money this year than last year. And, and those are sort of like just simple questions. But because the premise of the show kind of gives me permission to ask these questions that you probably wouldn't ask in another interview, they can open up new new avenues. And, and we don't always use the answers to those questions, but but sometimes it's really interesting. Like I asked Dan Savage about money and he <laughs> went on and on about how that was the single, you know, biggest point of t- tension in his in his marriage was was spending because he doesn't like to spend money and his husband does and and it was just interesting to me because that's not often what I hear Dan Savage talking about. I hear him talking about how to negotiate your sex life with your partner. And so to hear him talk about how to negotiate online spending with your partner was was new. You give people the opportunity to say to you, oh, I would rather not talk about that, or uh, do you also give them the opportunity to say after they have talked about something, I would rather you not ran that? That's like a, you know, that's a hard thing because I come from journalism and I come from, you know, where if you say something on the record, it's on the record and that's that. And, but, but it's because these are sort of very personal conversations where someone might start talking about something that they didn't anticipate talking about you know I do try to be sensitive about that I one example is we were doing 
and a series of interviews at a Planned Parenthood clinic in Brooklyn and was talking to people who walked through the door, people who volunteered there, people who were patients. And I was talking to one woman who was a volunteer and, and sort of started the conversation talking about the political reasons why she was a supporter of Planned Parenthood. And then as we continued talking, she started talking about the abortion that she'd had. Hang on just a sec. She's <laughs> baby crying. Um, hang on, girl. Yeah, we should be clear that this isn't like a weird sound effects track that I've laid in here. <laughs> You're kind enough right to talk I, to me right during your maternity Right when I start talking leave. about the abortion, the baby starts yeah. crying. It's kind of, um, yeah, it's kind of not, uh, all right. But as I always say, oh, I, I was talking to a woman who, she, she was a volunteer there, and she first kind of talked about uh, Planned Parenthood and abortion from a very political standpoint, and then as we continued talking, she started talking more haltingly and admitted that she'd had an abortion in college, and it's not something that she talked about or really shared with even people she was activist with. And so at the end of that conversation, I said, you know, you gave me your full name at the beginning of this conversation. You know, how do you, I don't know if you knew you were going to go there. How do you feel about using your full name? And and we just had a, a you know, a conversation over the next few weeks as we were getting the episode ready. And so she knew what was going to be in it. And she ended up choosing to use her full name and felt comfortable with that. But I felt like it was the right thing to do to, to just loop back around and 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 make sure. Um, in the case of a famous person, when that's come up, it's often not the famous person who has complaints. It's the publicist who gets worried if if their famous person said something um, you know provocative. Uh, and in those cases, it's it's you know we can usually justify how we're using their tape and saying you know we're doing this. We're gonna we're gonna include that tape, but we're doing it in this way, and so it's not gonna come off in the way that I think that that you fear, and and we have that follow up conversation. Um, but we do try to be sensitive because when you're asking people to come in and you know talk about death, sex, and money, it's it's very private stuff. It's stuff that affects other relationships sometimes, and so so we do try to to be really sensitive to that. How often do people who have come into your studio, you know, celebrities or whatever, uh, celebrities or folks who have agreed to talk about something in particular say, I would rather not talk about that to you? You know, it's less often than you would think. Um, And I think that's because often the kind of hard questions or the most private questions, when I ask them, it's in the context of of exploring something else. It's like, you know, someone mentions, you know, the death of their mother and how that affected how they felt about life when they were in their 60s. Then I'll follow up and say, you know, what was it what was it like when your mom died? Were you there? And asking them to retell the story. And then you'll get these very intimate moments that uh, are private or personal. Um, but because they're sort of in the context of a larger conversation I think they don't feel as as much as if you know as as invasive if I'd like walked right into the room and said you know I heard you were in the room when your mom died what was that like you know it's about it's about creating the the context and creating the the relationship that will allow you to ask those more personal questions how do you feel about asking public people or semi-public people about intimate things that are part of the public record, like things that 
someone else may have asked them about it, it, it less respectfully. Oh, I think that that's, I like asking about that. I think it's, I think that's one of the fun things about getting to do a podcast where you have more space um, to explore something. So, you know, if it's a celebrity, there could be something that's very tabloidy and got kind of pulled out and it was a little blurb in the front of Us Weekly about someone getting sober or someone um, getting divorced. Uh, But in the context of of a larger conversation, you can explore that more. Um, And certainly if it's something that someone's gone through, I remember I interviewed Joy Williams, who's a singer who was in the band Civil Wars and they had a kind of public uh, break up the band and, and there were all sorts of rumors about what had happened. And, and so we talked about what happened when the band broke up, but it wasn't in a way like, you know, I didn't say, so, you know, did you have an affair? What was going on? It was more like walk me through the emotional terrain of that moment when this, you know, band that you were in that had this incredible success. And then all of a sudden, you know, privately you, you are, it's all conflict and you can't get along and your, your band is falling apart. What was that like? So it's sort of, I'm more interested in the kind of, you know, the, that, that, like morass as opposed to kind of the you know tell me black and white what happened and why you broke up and or you know tell me why you got divorced or tell me why you uh decided to have kids it's like it's like you know I don't think that's how real life happens I think it's about acknowledging that emotions and relationships and decisions are really complicated and often not black and white I was thinking about who I've interviewed for whom issues of death, sex, and money are like important in their careers. I uh-huh. thought of I, I thought of Paul Rubens, Pee-wee, uh-huh. better known as Pee Wee Herman. Uh-huh. I don't remember if I asked him about. I feel like I mu- I I feel like sometimes when I ask people about that stuff, I don't want to ask them about the incident. But because mostly because I kind of feel like I don't want to know about the incident, but more, but I might have a genuine interest in the, in what surrounds it, Mm -hmm. you know, like I, I remember I did, I like, I asked Jason Sudeikis, like what it was like to be with, uh, to be super famous and be with, uh, you know, to live with a woman who's also super famous and like have a baby Mm -hmm. and. But I didn't really want to, I don't know, I felt, I didn't really want to ask Jason Sudeikis, like, what's it like to be a famous playboy? Mm-hmm. And I, I have a hard time making those decisions sometimes myself. So I guess I'm just looking for guidance from you. Maybe well, I, I should change it's... the name of my show so they know what they're getting into. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's one way to do it. But I think that that's the tension in what you're doing as an interviewer it's because you're you have two objectives that are in tension with one another you have to forge a relationship and make the person you're talking to feel safe and make them feel like you're not some hack who's just asking for you know them to repeat the story they've told 16 times or ask them to talk about the thing they've said 16 times they don't want to talk about so you you have to take care with that dynamic you have to take care with that dynamic but you also have to serve your listeners. So you know that your listeners, if you listen to an interview with Paul Rubens, 
there's a that was a critical juncture in his career. So to skip over it or to act like it didn't happen or to not ask the question or acknowledge it at all in the interview, I think might make the listeners feel like you dodged the hard question. So so I think that's the that's the hardest part in structuring interviews and interview questions is how do you both sort of protect the relationship with the person that you're talking to and make sure you're not wimping out and you're serving the audience. I interviewed Fred Willard. And, you know, Fred Willard also had his own jack-off scandal. <laughs> is this good episode going to be called Talking Jack-Off Scandals with Anna Sale? This is just called Jack-Off Scandals <laughs> with Anna Sale, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why my why my personal entertainment heroes are are so often caught up in jackoff scandals, <laughs> um, especially in Fred Willard's case in contemporary times when uh, pretty much any kind of jacking off you need to do can be done at home. But I asked him about something. I, I don't remember exactly what I asked him, but I asked him something that was sort of uh, that was again was not like asking him to tell me about what it was like to go into a an adult movie theater but something about you know something about how that changed his career because it did i mean among other things he got fired from a tv show and it was weird he told me he, he's the only person who's ever told me they didn't want to answer a question and i usually if i remember or if i have any plan to ask someone about something that seems like it would be sensitive i, I try and give them the same admonition that you do and he's the only person who's ever said to me, uh, you know, I'd rather not talk about that. He also then just like gave me a really good answer to the question. <laughs> hmm. But then I, I had already told him that I wouldn't use it. <laughs> oh, that sucks. <laughs> Did you go back and say, could you mind since you expo- since you said that interesting thing, do you mind using that? Did you have that follow-up conversation or you just let it go? I let it go because I felt like he really, he really... You know, I just wanted to respect this guy that was, I felt yeah. like he, he, he clearly did not want to talk about it because he did not want his voice talking about it to be a thing on the airwaves rather than because he felt like he would misrepresent himself or something like that. Yeah. Like he, that was, that was very clear to me. Um, if I felt like it was just like, oh, I might say the wrong thing. And then he gave me a great answer and I could say like, you know, that was a really great answer. I don't think you said the wrong thing. Maybe you should let us use that. Then I probably would have said something. But yeah, it's it's uh, I get I get scared to ask people about that stuff. Do you get scared to ask people about that stuff, or is it or is it something that is enticing enough to you that it's more enticing than it is scary? Enticing, enticing sounds kind of sick. Well, <laughs> so I, don't I don't think mean salacious, and I'm not right specifically word. talking about jackoff scandals here. Let's be clear. Okay. But um, like, there, but I, I know I know plenty of people who really enjoy hearing people the juicy parts of people's lives that they know I mean just like in life like I have friends who just want me to tell them about something intimate and I have other friends who have never asked me a half a word about anything intimate and we've been friends 25 years you know uh huh I'm a dude, so it's mostly the second yeah, category. Yeah, that's very different than my <laughs> friendships. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I um, mean, like, anytime, anytime things get weird, we can always talk about the giant starting rotation or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, like, do you feel like when you're talking to someone you don't know that 
your interest in really knowing about the intimate parts of their lives overcomes your discomfort at whatever invasion or other negative stuff there might that might come with that yeah i mean two two things about that i think i do try to make sure if i if i'm going to ask about something that i know is probably very tender or you know embarrassing or was a hard moment in someone's life i want to make sure that i'm clear with myself you know why why we're going there in the episode and 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 so that and i might even like talk about that in the beginning of you know our conversation when we're sitting down to record it's like i want to talk to you about this this and this and i'm interested in this because blah 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 blah. you know just kind of try to to couch it in a way that that um that that gives it a sort of purpose um but i do i do try to be really respectful even as i'm being probing but I don't think I get afraid of asking the question, and I think that's from being a reporter where I had to be at press conferences and shout questions that the person didn't want to answer. So there's a, so kind of a both, I think that training was important for me as an interviewer, but certainly it's a really different dynamic when you're doing personal interviews than when you're shouting uh, you know, accountability questions at a politician. But it's interesting to me because when you talked about the the responsibilities that you have, you talked about serving your audience in a way that I might never have thought of in the way that you characterized it. And I think it's probably because I, I am not and was never an actual journalist. <laughs> <laughs> like I think what you do is journalism. I think it counts. Eh. I think it's journalism. Eh, semi-journalism. You don't lie. You try I'm not like, to lie. I'm, I'm looking at semi-journalists. I, although, you know, by the NPR ethics handbook, what's weird is I used to be with PRI, you know, and uh-huh. uh, you probably don't know. <laughs> Very few people know. Um, no, I know. I know. I, I followed you, the trajectory. I, <laughs> I used to be with PRI. With PRI, was in, they called me an entertainer. And then when mm-hmm. I went to NPR, they're like, no, you're definitely a journalist. And the main thing is that now I can't say anything about any political beliefs that I have publicly. And That's also the main I like thing. not not fact checking <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> it's that you can't have a point of view. Yeah, I'm not well I'm allowed to have a little bit of point of view, but like NPR is pretty strict about not having that much point of view. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and like I mean I guess I also like can't take gifts like of okay. of but no one was offering me you know, no one has ever said, like, the Jack Daniels has never called me up and said, do you want a free trip to the Caribbean? So that was <laughs> that was pretty irrelevant either way. <laughs> you know, I think that's a real thing that happens to people, but it's never happened to me. Um, so that's never come up. But anyway, my point being that, like, that you in some ways still look at, like, for me, there is still a part of me that thinks, you know what? Paul Rubens probably doesn't want to talk about the worst part of his life. Who am I to say that he should talk about the worst part of his life? Who am I to bother him about that? Maybe I should just talk to him about all this other amazing stuff in his life and just let that be without thinking what you just said specifically, which is like, oh, this is a critical part of his career and you're serving the audience by telling that part of the story. 
Yeah. Well, I, and I also think it's 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 narratively important to ask the harder questions, but also I started Death, Sex, and Money because I wanted conversation. I needed conversations. Of wanted to hear people how they'd gotten through hard things in their life. You know, I was living in New York. I was wondering how I was going to support myself as a divorced young woman and wondering what kinds of career choices I was going to make and what kind of sacrifices I was going to make to be successful and thinking about my values and thinking about, you know, what was going to make me happy. And and they were really scary things that were going through my head and I felt like you know the moments of transcendence or were were, you know were when I was listening to a fresh air interview and someone talked about a similar moment of just complete you know lack of clarity and and how they with time and you know incremental decisions they got to a different place and and that really was important to me to be able to hear conversations like that. And so that that is also part of when I say serving the audience. It's like not flinching from acknowledging that there are like humiliating, difficult things that happen in all of our lives. And so it's not when I ask someone to, to revisit those moments, it's not to, you know, let's let's pull off this Band-Aid and, and you know, feel that pain again. It's to say like how did you get through that you know because i think that that's what the show promises when you have a show called death sex and money you're you're promising that you're going to go there and admit that that there are some things that that are unresolved in life and and can be hard more of my conversation with jesse thorne in a minute for me listening back to this interview i was struck to hear how jesse hears the show and what he thinks I'm doing when I'm talking with guests on Death, Sex, and Money. This week, we also got to hear from more of you about what our episodes leave you thinking about. We teamed up with the New York Times Podcast Club for their first-ever meetup to talk about our student loan series. More than 100 listeners were there in New York as producer Katie Bishop and sound designer and composer Andrew Dunn answered questions from the stage. I was piped in over the internet from Wyoming. And it was all streamed live on Facebook. You can still watch it on our Facebook page. And speaking of Wyoming, thank you to everyone here and from Montana who've reached out about getting together while I'm in the area. I've loved hearing how many of you are listening to us under the Mountain West big skies. We've got happy hour meetups planned in Bozeman and Cody. Details are on our Facebook page. Check it out and please RSVP. And we're coming to LA next month. On Saturday, August 12th, we're doing a live episode recording at the Annenberg Space for Photography in collaboration with their current exhibit called Generation Wealth by photographer Lauren Greenfield. I'll be interviewing Charlie Schrem, who was once known as the Bitcoin millionaire before he went to prison. Now he's out and back working in tech, and I'll talk to him about how he thinks about money after all this. Tickets and more information for that event are also on our Facebook page. Now, back to Jesse Thorne, interviewing me about interviewing. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. 
Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Death, Sex, Money. We are so excited to see you there. I'm talking to Anna Sale. She's the host of WNYC's Death, Sex, and Money. Are there other things about your life as uh, as a you know capital J journalist, like the kind with a press pass and the uh, hat band of a fedora, <laughs> trench coat? Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> that's all I presume. Uh, like basically, in my back pocket. Yeah, <laughs> my entire imagination of uh, your career before Death, Sex, and Money. Uh, is that you were either like Robert Redford in All the President's Men or possibly April O'Neil from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> those are I was my... Like both, actually. Yes, yeah. Those are my <laughs> journalism role models. <laughs> anyway, are there other things that you learned to do when you were like... Uh, when you were interviewing a city council person or uh, talking to some scientist about water safety or whatever uh, that helped you do the kind of, you know, emotional narrative reporting that you do now? Yeah, I think because it's, it's you know, when you're, when you're covering a straight news story, what you're trying to get, and particularly for radio, is you're trying to get someone to... to answer a question to you in plain language that feels sincere and that feels like it's answering the question you have. And so that when you're when you're a sort of roving reporter on deadline, you've got to figure out how to have those interactions, you know, within three minutes so you can get your tape, get back on the subway and file before deadline. So you have to kind of figure out what's my first question? What's my second question? What's my third question? What's the follow-up if they don't answer it in this way? So you, so it's, it's, it's intense listening and it's, you know, planning and figuring out what's the tape that I'm trying to get here. And so I think of that as like, when I, when I sit down to do a death, sex and money interview, it's the same feeling. It's like, I'm going into, you know, a, a, a chamber of intense concentration where you do the prep, you write out your list of questions that you think you're going to ask. But then once you're in that interaction, it's like it's being there in that moment and listening carefully and, and hearing the tape that you're collecting and 
making sure it's going somewhere and asking the follow-up questions. So I think that being a reporter and it, it was it was important for just figuring out how to make sure you get the tape that you have set out to get to answer the questions that your listeners are going to have. What do you do to prepare for an interview? Like what what time do you spend and how do you spend it and what do you bring in to the room? To the room. Um, I do. It depends on if the person is a well-known person who's done a lot of interviews. You, I do a sort of deep dive um, with the help of awesome producers who will put together preps and pull together, you know, profiles and and radio interviews. And I'll, I'll I will listen to what they've done before. So I will, so that when I'm in the interview, if I hear them going to a place where they're going to kind of a rote retelling of a story that they've told before, I'll, I'll try to kind of interject to kind of mix it up a little bit. Um, so I, so I, I try to understand someone's body of work. I try to understand someone's, you know, the critical moments of transition, whether it's, you know, when they moved from a place to place or when they got married or when they had kids or, or when they decided to you know, leave the band and go solo, et cetera. And I, and I like to have that on a timeline, like on one piece of paper so that I can have that in the room with me and be able to look at it and say, so when you were 30, this happened in, or, or something like that, just to kind of place it in time. And it helps me understand, okay, if, some, if, this, if this big thing happened when they were in their mid-20s, it probably was a different emotional experience than it, if it happened in their mid-50s, or, you know, for example. Um, so I will go in with a timeline and then I'll have maybe, you know, at the most, like, try to have just like two pages of questions so it can, they can both be face up to me. So I'm not like rifling around with papers during the conversation. Cause I, I actually don't often look down at the list of questions that I bring in. Um, it's more like the, the practice of writing them out and figuring out the beginning, middle and end and, and what are the, what are the moments and, and you know, interesting dynamics that we want to make sure we get to. And that happens. I have a conversation with our producers ahead of time and we all sit and we say, well, what are we wondering about this person? So we'll have a list of questions. We'll add different questions. And then I'll kind of sit with that before I go into the studio. And, and then, then that, that's sort of a guide, but I'm not, I'm not, not often reading questions. It's interesting that you say about reading and or listening to or watching interviews with people that's something that i do a lot and i think that like for me less the um less avoiding a pat answer although that's certainly you know it certainly helps you recognize patterns and like understand what oh if i ask this they're just going to give me their thing that they've said a thousand times because a thousand people have asked them and it gives you an understanding of what a thousand people have asked them too right <laughs> right um, oh somebody else thought of that question <laughs> I, I feel like a lot often when i read an interview with somebody uh and i often read them just because it's the fastest i like to think oh there are these things that everyone asks somebody and, and then i like to think oh what is the thing that their response to that makes me wonder and can yeah. I somehow like just go right to that? Just say, just just provide the exposition for the first part, and just go right to the second one. Yeah, I think that's that's really effective because it sort of takes people, you know, they they get off their sort of 
you know, th throws them off from their usual way of answering the question. And you're saying, you're, you're also saying, I hear you and I know what you've said before and I'm, you know, acknowledging that I have paid attention to you. So tell me about the next step of that story. It, I think it, it helps to, to just also demonstrate that you're, that you've taken the interview seriously and that you're actually curious. Your show is relatively, for a show as conversational as it is, heavily edited. In that you're kind of you're kind of narrating and guiding the audience through a story about the interview. Although it still is a you know it, it still is essentially presented conversationally. Are you doing that thing that I know a lot of reporters do, where? in their head there is a checklist of pieces of tape they need to tell the story they think they're going to tell and the conversation in some ways is about getting those six moments or uh, eight moments or whatever or are you doing something else? I mean, are you in a flow of conversation and then you try and cut jigsaw pieces, pieces out of this big hunk of wood that you've got at the end? Yeah. Uh, I'm, the first part sounds so cynical. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't way. mean it to sound, I don't mean it to sound cynical, <laughs> but you know, like if I, like, uh, hopefully, like, uh, like Ira Glasses will talk to me at some point for this show all things being equal. Hopefully we won't want to have to edit that out if he doesn't. Um, but like, I know like Ira's, Ira's only his greatest dream in the world from having talked to him about this is like to get that hot tape. Like he just wants that hot tape. Like he, I just feel like even if I'm talking to him sitting across a dinner table, there's a part of his, there is one track inside of his brain that is checking to see if anything that either of us has said is hot tape. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like he's like he's like right there. And that is something that I know for myself, I have struggled to develop that skill, which I, I consider it an incredible skill. Because I think just because for the first A, no, I never learned how to do this from anybody, so I'm I'm still pretty dumb about it. But also um That's not true. I also I'm not I didn't say I was bad at it, I just said I was dumb about it. Um <laughs> And but also like for the first seven years or something that I did it, I was live on the air. And so there's a huge part of me that I have to work to suppress that is scared that at some moment things are going to dip in some way. And so I have to like have full control over it at all times, which isn't necessarily the most conducive to getting the getting the peaks. You know, sometimes peaks go with valleys. Yeah, I think that's such a different uh, it's like when you're switching between doing conversations that are live to doing taped conversations, it's such a different muscle because when you're doing a live conversation, you are paying attention to pacing and you're paying attention to, you know, oh, you're, you're, you're much, I find for myself, I'm much more likely to, to abandon course and try a different way in in a live conversation than I am in a taped conversation because obviously you don't have the advantage of being able to go back and, and edit out the stuff that, that was meandering. So, but to go back to your, the bigger question you had, do I think about a conversation as a, a way to get 
you know, the, the eight pieces of tape that I know are going to, I'm going to string together for an episode. I really don't think of it that way. I, I think of it like maybe these are the eight moments in their life that I want to bring up and see what comes up. But often, you know, once you're in the conversation, you know, it can go in a totally different direction than I anticipated. And then we decide afterwards, like come out of the studio and say, you know, that let's like, let's pick up, you know, start the episode when they're 40, because the whole stuff about their childhood didn't go anywhere and it wasn't interesting. And, and so it's like trying to preserve the most interesting moments that were recorded in that conversation, as opposed to, you know, shoehorning them into uh, a produced piece. Um, because I think that the show death, sex and death, sex and money, I think the interviews are, what gives them, you know, when they're when they're really good, it's it's when they have that feeling of a really intimate exchange, and it's not um, not acts and tracks and a feeling of me stitching together someone narrating something. It it feels like a conversation where we're exploring something together. What is your objective? Like when you step out of the booth or wherever you're conducting the interview. How do you judge, before you've put together a show, how do you judge whether you've done a good job or whether this one has worked out? Uh, sometimes I can't tell, which is interesting to me. Sometimes I'll walk out and I'll think, God, they just like didn't play ball and that was terrible. And then I go back and listen to the tape and the the moments where I was feeling frustrated as an interview as an interviewer actually are very revealing. That was, that was the case when I interviewed Bill Withers and I know you've interviewed him too, but like he has this way of like, he's He's not going to go somewhere that he doesn't feel like going. And particularly not with, particularly not with some, with some white person. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. You know, um, so so yeah. So, so it's, I remember coming out of that, feeling like, oh God, like, I don't know. He, there were so many moments when I just asked him a question, he just like dismissed it as like a dumb way to ask a question, you know? But then the tape itself, showing those moments where he was kind of batting me around were so revealing about his character and his personality. And then, it, you know, then I realized listening deeper that like there was just like a st- string of pearls strung together because of the way he's just such a, a gifted communicator. Um, you know that's but, funny. Uh, that it's I don't. Uh, it's funny that you say that. I mean, like the first time I ever emailed you, and I think or t- tweeted at you or whatever, and I think I like looked it up because I was just like, oh, I remember when I interviewed Bill Withers. I know what that was like, and she did a good ass <laughs> job. Was when I heard your Bill Withers interview. You know, um, and uh, but the first time I ever interviewed Bill Withers, like I went to this hotel. He was doing interviews for this documentary they didn't know that he never does interviews he's done more interviews in the last five years or so than he had done in the previous 15 but he had literally done like one interview in the last 10 years when i interviewed him (laughs) well two if you count the one that he did just before the one with me which was with pasadena magazine um (laughs) but but like uh i went in there and, and he's really you know, in addition to being a really uh, brilliant and formidable and intentionally intimidating guy, he's also, you know, one of my favorite artists of any kind of all time, like top yeah. five probably. And so I was, I was, you know, even though I, I at that point probably I, I usually would, you know, I'm usually not worried about that anymore. But um, 
that was like a big one, you know? And, uh, and he really put me through some shit. Like he really put me through some shit and feeling like I had been able to basically hang with him, like not like, (laughs) you know, I wasn't sure if it was a home run or anything, but I knew that like I had kept my head above water. Yeah, no, it's a really good interview. I remember listening to it in my kitchen. I can remember where I was. Well, thank you. But yeah. it was it was a moment when I felt like it was like a moment that I've one of the moments that I've learned the most from, or one of the hours that I've learned the most from in my entire career of doing this because it was so scary. Mm-hmm. And I thought, and I realized at some point, like, oh, it's okay if it's scary, like. I'm ve- I'm a very risk averse person. Like I'm inclined to avoid scary things. Um, but I was like, oh, okay, that came out okay. That was very, that was very powerful for me. That and one time my therapist said I was talking about getting nervous before interviews and like uh, I get migraine headaches and um, uh, if I you know stress is a migraine trigger. And uh, he said to me, well, does it ever go bad? I was like, not really. <laughs> like, I mean, like it goes worse than other times. Like, definitely some of them are better than others. But the the less ones, the less good. Like, I've been doing this a long time. The less good ones are still fine. And then he goes like, eh? you know, like that therapist, like, I'm going to let you have an epiphany thing. Yeah. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be fine. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I have a sister who's a doctor and she, you know, will go on a shift and, you know, she will be trying to keep mothers alive while they're going in childbirth or she'll have a, you know, baby die in the course of, of, you know, prenatal care. And I'll talk to her about her work and it really puts my stress about my work in, <laughs> into perspective. <laughs> but like, all stress is oh, relative. That's not fair. Yeah. To, that's not fair to you. All stress, all human experience is relative. But like, I think that what that part of part of what you are talking about there is that there is this. And by the way, I encourage the I encourage listeners to listen to your interview with Bill Withers and my interviews with Bill Withers and decide who's better. Um, but <laughs> let's have a Twitter poll. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, like that episode of sports night where they're trying to decide who's cooler, Casey or Dan. <laughs> and then Jeremy fucking, uh, builds a bot to trick the, trick the web poll. I think about that a lot. Probably more than I should. Probably shouldn't have admitted how much I think about you that. You just gave away. Yeah. You just gave away your trick. Now, um, but what I was going to say is that, like, there is a certain um, there is a certain truth to the fact that you, what you're talking about is identifying that as an interviewer, your 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 own personal experience of having an interaction with this person is not the same as the product that is being created yeah. out of that interaction, and yeah. that can be a difficult thing to understand. I know it's hard for me sometimes that. If I have a contentious interview with someone, for example, that that may be unpleasant for me because I am conflict avoidant, but it is not necessary. Doesn't necessarily mean that the that the show was less good. Yeah, I mean, I I th- my producers will often like that's one of their things that they always say is like let's keep booking people who are going to make you feel uncomfortable um, <laughs> because it's revealing, you know. It's it's and it's also f- 
you know, it's not comfortable in the moment, but it's it's fun in the end because it does it, it throws you off your you know my own kind of rote patterns of an of an interview. It's it's fun to get to get into a moment where it's like, wait, wait, I'm this person all of a sudden is totally unsympathetic to me. And, and that's not a dynamic that happens often on the show. Cause the show is all about tell me your personal story and tell me, you know, tell me where, what you were going through. But there are some things where it kind of hits right up against my principles and values. Um, and it's interesting. Like I can, that we did an interview with a guy who was kind of an, an admitted dirty cop who was a retired, who got an, a, a disability a retirement from NYPD and still collects his pension, even though he admits that he was stealing money from people he was supposed to be protecting. And I asked him about that and he felt fine still collecting his pension because according to New York courts, he could. And that was, you know, not a, that that's a moment that sticks out for me as like an interesting moment on the show, but it, but it wasn't typical or it wasn't, um, it wasn't like we were sitting in a corner bonding like the show can often feel. Well, we've been talking for a long time, so I want to run through a couple of quick things here uh, before I let you return to less important things like mothering. <laughs> um, I've been mothering while I've been doing this interview. That, that is what a good mother I am. Yeah, I mean, you know, my my wife. I mean, the thing that my wife, one of the things that she talks about the most, and she is a, she talks about these things a lot because she has a podcast called One Bad Mother. But is is mommy brain, which is when you have a relatively new baby, which I can only presume your baby's relatively new because I know you're on maternity leave right now. Yeah. That you get this thing called mommy brain. It's like a proven science thing that basically your brain just devotes all of its resources to make sure this baby doesn't die. And then everything else is just allowed to, you know, I don't want to say wither on the vine, but like be what it is, you know, like not the priority. Like there's a priority, which is not a dead baby. Everything else is like, yeah, whatever, whatever comes along is fine. You know, we can put on clothes or not, but let's make sure this baby doesn't die. Like, your level of eloquence right now is astonishing. <laughs> I think it speaks to this bifurcated, your ability to multi-track your mind that is required for any broadcast interviewer. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. I had a, had a, well, had a better than normal night's sleep last night. Oh, actively taking care of a baby. child. Okay, let's get through a couple of quick things that I really want to make sure I want uh, that I ask you. One is this thing that I keep thinking about and forgetting to ask you in this conversation, which is, do you ever talk about yourself? Yes. To what extent yeah. and in what context? Uh, well, when the show started, one of the first episodes was about um, a, a moment of complete disarray in my personal life and about this like... I'm not talking about that. You did a story. I'm not talking about do you have the courage to reveal something about your own feelings on the air because yes, oh. you did a you did a really beautiful and amazing story. Uh, I thought that's what time, your question was. About, no, but it wasn't <laughs> just setting you up for the story of a time a senator called you to teach you about love. I know it's a good story. <laughs> it is a good story. We've all heard the story of the time a senator called you to teach you about love. We all know that one time Phil Collins was surprisingly wise to Starley Kine. We know these stories, okay? We're familiar with you. Okay, so what's your question? What I'm talking about is when you're talking to Bill Withers or whatever. Oh, in the course of an interview. When you're do not I say... the sub yeah, when you're not the subject of the interview. 
Yeah. I will do that. And I do it sparingly. And a lot of the time it gets edited out um, because I do feel like it's a little indulgent. But I do, I do you, that. You understand uh, right now that you're talking to a guy who's doing a podcast about the thing he does for a living that no one's going to listen to, right? <laughs> I made poor Daniel run the board over here for this. <laughs> to be indulgent. Well, I mean, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, indulgences are good, but I do th- sometimes. But I think it can be, it, like, I... There's certainly a spectrum of of people who use that as a technique in their interviewing, and I think it can be a really um, important technique in the moment, in a conversation, when you're getting to a place that's like super tender or awkward feeling for the person you're talking to, and it can be really um, effective and, and, you know, just human to say, I, you know, that happened to me too, and when I was going through that, I felt this. Is that how you felt? You know, that can be just a, a way to make the person feel okay going there. Um, and sometimes I leave that in, but it's, I think my interviewing style is more to try to figure out how to ask the shortest question to get to the deepest place. And and sometimes if, if, if I'm setting up a, conver- a question by like giving a personal anecdote, the, the question can get kind of buried. Do you ever space out when the other person's talking? I try not to. So yes, uh, thank God. Well, well, I try not to. I, I, you know, I. There's certainly like you, I, I wouldn't say space out, but there's certainly like when someone is going on and on somewhere, and I'm sure it's happened while we've been talking. You're like, well, I'm gonna cut from four minutes and thirty seconds on until six minutes when she picked up again and stopped. Oh hell no! You think I'm thing. cutting this? No, oh. no, no, no. You're not understanding the the indulgence of this. This is just going out oh. raw. That's going out raw. Okay. Anyway, well, that's 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 how I like. It's not spacing out, but it's thinking. Oh, this this tape is not tight, or this tape is not um, super compelling, and so it's probably going to be edited out. And so then I'm thinking, what's the next question that's going to pick up momentum? Okay. Uh, I got that. Got that. Got that. Okay. So you would think that this would be the part that I would edit out, but it's really it's going to be in there. Because fuck it, as I said, um, it's so, all about yeah. You're you're preserving this interaction. It's yeah. It's who verite? Yeah, exactly. Let's sure. Let's call it something French. <laughs> <laughs> I call it escargot. Um, so, uh, who are your interview heroes? Who are my interview heroes? I mean, my first interview hero always has been Terry Gross. I mean, that's how I fell in love with radio, and that's who I sort of realized I was jealous of when I was a year out of college and knew I needed to quit my nonprofit job because I wasn't doing what I wanted to do, and what I wanted to do was do what Terry Gross got to do. So she's my always and forever. She's my always and forever hero. Um, Always Other, and forever. Always. I mean, it's like, you know, sentimental. Like, it's like gross. laying in the back, like total, you know, laying in the back of the seat of the car when my parents listen to public radio hearing her. Like, she's just, she taught me about pop culture and art and also how to, how to be respectful about someone's craft and also try to understand the personal dimension of it. The Great um, American Songbook, she taught you about that. 
She did. I mean, you know, she's been important to me, and she's also a wonderful person. Um, I, I definitely have, like, tried to, to pick up every personal detail about her life that I've been able to. Um, and I think she's becoming more forthcoming in recent years than she was, uh, you know, in years past, which is, like, very titillating and exciting. Um, but what, what I will say about, uh, like, I think it's important to say, because I, I think it, it was, like, so overwhelming to me is when I when I did get to talk to her about interviewing and and meet her in person like she is such a gracious sensitive spirit and and just in a personal interaction like she's someone who if she accidentally interrupts you you know when you're in line to get your lunch at the potluck or something she will say oh I'm sorry you we go ahead go ahead tell me what you were saying like she's very <laughs> attuned to trying to make sure she's she's being uh, respectful and and that was really instructive to me just about of course she has these incredible interactions with people because she is incredibly respectful of other people um and i i think that that's like just a really important thing if when you think about the craft of interviewing is her her interpersonal uh, gift of just making you feel like she's gonna listen to you and you know wants to know what you're thinking and feeling. Can I, Anna, um, can I tell you the closest I ever got to talking to Terry Gross? Yeah. So I've invited her on my show many times and she's always politely declined. Um, okay. And I've she's never been. She's a busy met, lady. Yeah, yeah, no, she's a crazy busy lady and she doesn't know me shit. Um, so it's totally fine that she's declined many times. But the closest I've ever gotten to talking to her, I mean, I've met producers on the show and stuff who are all really great um, uh, and have had great experiences meeting them and stuff. Uh, the closest I ever got was years and years ago when I first signed up with PRI. I was at PRPD, the Public Radio Program Directors Conference. And uh, I like didn't know anybody and nobody was nice to me. <laughs> there's like three <laughs> there's like a list of like three people who were nice to me who I will be forever uh, loyal to. But basically everybody was like, What the fuck is this twenty six year old doing here? And uh, you do your show at your house. And I was sitting at the PRI booth because I didn't know anyone to talk to. So I was hoping someone would come talk to me. And uh, Christine Dempsey came by, who at the time was uh, running HYY, uh, the show where Fresh Air is at. And uh, I had met her, and she was real nice. And the PRI person was like, hey, Christine, has Terry, because my show was running, it had just started running on HYY at the time. She was like, hey, has Terry ever heard The Sound of Young America? What, what does she think of it? Thinking that like, oh, this is the perfect time to pump her for a blurb or whatever, you know? And uh, and Christine Gemsey goes, she says, I don't know. I ran into her in the hall one time and I asked her and she said, well, I think the name is dumb. <laughs> That's your brush with Terry. That's as close as I've ever gotten. And she's, I mean, she's not wrong. That was a dumb name. I had to change it because it was too dumb. People didn't get what the deal was with it. Anyway, who else besides Terry? Because we don't want to just get into this whole TG thing. Um, <laughs> let's see. That's how, I write, that's how I write her name when I'm writing JT Hart TG on the, my like notebooks and whatnot. <laughs> In geometry class. <laughs> TG, um, I think other people who've been important, uh, I mean, I have very, I have very, very uh, unoriginal things to say about who my interviewing inspirations have been because they're, they're just like the people who I found when I was like 
a teenager when you're first like learning about this stuff and, and finding people that you you want to emulate? Um, sure, teenagerhood. Ever... When you when a when yeah. a girl first discovers long form interviews. <laughs> well, that's I know I was horrible at small talk at parties, so it gave me hope. It was like, well, there is a use for me in this world, but I. Uh, the other person who I think about is I think about Studs Terkel and I think about like reading working when I was like, you know, growing up in West Virginia and seeing someone who gave dignity and importance to people who had stories that that weren't going to show up um you know, on the front of newspapers or, or you know, you know, in, in celebrity journalism, it was you know giving, giving weight to those kinds of stories. And the, and the other person I think of, and this isn't really about interviewing, but um, who was really important in my thinking about death, sex, and money was um, Ellen Goodman, who used to be a syndicated columnist for the Boston Globe, and she was like a hero of mine when I was in high school. And she has talked about what it was like in the you know 70s and 80s to be a writer, um, kind of making the case that the domestic sphere of life was as important a place of inquiry as the public sphere of life and and how she sort of saw that as a feminist act it's like giving it mm-hmm. giving it worth and and value and that's the other dimension of death sex and money which isn't the interviews with famous people it's interviews with people who you haven't heard of and you know talking to people about what their relationships are like with their siblings now that they've grown up you know or something that may sound so sort of you know not interesting because it's so every day, um, but that there's actually really compelling stuff there. That's what I think about with her. And that was important to think about that, that like, because as a political reporter, when you're doing voter interviews, you know, the thing that you're looking for is like the one anecdote about someone's life and then the sentence. And therefore I'm voting for Obama or something like that. Like it, so it all becomes this very sort of, um, you know, everything gets, gets, maybe you get a 20 second soundbite of someone talking about something important in their lives. And it was important to me with death, sex and money to make the argument that like that story alone, you know, whether or not what, despite what it meant for who they were going to vote for, but that story alone was, was valuable and worth listening to. What? Okay. This, this is the last thing. Like, so I'm going to talk to, you're actually the first person that I'm, I don't know if this will end up being the first episode that comes out, but this is the, you're the first person I've talked to for this project. Cool. Um, so I'm going to talk to a bunch of other people. What is the thing that you wish you could ask other people? I mean, look, you're hanging out at WNYC. You can go pop over to Brian Lair's office whenever you want. He's also really a great interviewer isn't brian Lair great he's also yeah, a hero great. he's amazing yeah you're you're yeah. very you're very, look we can all stipulate you're very lucky to be at a wonderful station at wnyc um and <laughs> I, I in fact i don't even think that you'll probably end up being the only person from wnyc i end up talking to but what is the thing that you feel the least confident about and maybe the least comfortable asking a colleague about that you would like to know about how to do interviews let's see that's a good question I think what I what I feel the most anxiety about is um, is becoming a cliche of yourself because I I have a per, I have a style in how I interact with people whether it's at a dinner party or in an interview when I'm trying to make them feel comfortable or when I'm 
thinking, you know, asking a, a, a probing question and then a follow-up question and, you know, the way that I will sort of audibly respond, like the way I'll say, you know, uh-huh, or the way I'll laugh or whatever, like there, there's certain ways that as an interviewer, who you are is, is, is just the way that you sound on tape and the way that your show therefore sounds. And so I worry about that becoming just like, you know, so like predictable and not an exciting experience for listeners to, to listen to. Like there's, there's so much, there's so much in so many places to go to listen to interesting things. Like how do you keep evolving as a, as a journalist and as an interviewer and as, you know, a storyteller and the things that you think about and the kinds of stories you tell, how do you keep mixing that up? Because, you know, in the midst of when you're trying to keep putting out episodes, um, because that's a real pressure. So how do you keep finding and pushing yourself to take risks and, and to do new kinds of things? Because as you get better as an interviewer, you also get more predictable, I think. Am I allowed to a- ask what your baby's called? Yes. <laughs> Some people, look, that's I'm... A, a, that's, a, that's a different way of asking what my baby's name is. <laughs> my baby is called June. Uh, that's my mom's name. So she's named after my mom. And right now she's two months old. Okay, so your baby's called June. She's named after your favorite movie, Benny and June. Mm-hmm. It's spelled J-O-N, yeah. <laughs> you can't get enough. <laughs> I One day you your know, husband just came home when you were pregnant board. and stuck two forks into movie. two dinner rolls and said, I think I've got the baby's <laughs> name. <laughs> June is a beautiful name. And Thank I can't, I'm, asto- I'm astonished at, I'm, I'm astonished that you both managed to converse with me uh, like a like the brilliant human being that you are and take care of that baby uh, that this whole time and I'm very grateful to you for uh, for doing that when you should have been doing something more important (laughs) she's just starting to cry right as you were saying that we're hitting our our limit Um, but thank you thank you for asking me to participate and I have one question for you I think it's really interesting that you describe yourself as someone who is risk averse when you also like when I was like a burned out political reporter trying to figure out what the thing I was going to get to do that would make me feel excited. Like you were this like inspiration. You were somebody who I felt like figured out how to just like take the leap and make something. Um, which feels like the opposite of being risk averse to me. But like, that's the thing. Here's the thing, Anna, like I definitely understand how it could look like that. (laughs) And I'm, and I'm don't don't get me wrong. Like I'm happy with how things. I'm I'm happy and grateful about how things turned out. Like I'm 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 I have a great life and everything. But um, like yeah, basically like the situation was I couldn't get a job. <laughs> like, it's not like I had a job and I was like oh I wish I could break the free of the shackles of the workaday world. <laughs> like the the best job I ever had was was. 25 hours a week as a receptionist and that was it do, and I was scared that I wasn't going to be able to that, get that job and I was going to starve and die so when I got that job it was like tears of like I finally got a job but then that was the you know like I never got a job in radio I applied for hundreds I just I just didn't know I don't know it's probably for the best because I'm not I don't know how I would be how good I would be at having a job now but 
but yeah, like basically the risk averse part is I just like never quit because I was scared that if I quit, I would have to think oh, of a new, new meaning for my life. Like this yeah. is my, my, my fucking show is my, my college radio it's show. Survival. Like, yeah. It's continued. I've just done a show every week since I was 19, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, it's not like it's like the risk would have been for me to think of a new idea or like, you know what I mean? Very, very incremental. Everything has been very, very, very incremental. There have been no big jumps. Okay, so you're much less courageous than I thought you were. Now, thank you for telling me that. <laughs> yeah, I, frankly, yeah. Like, on a scale of 1 to 10, where 10 is most courageous, 0 is least courageous. I'm not going to say I'm like, like if I'm frank with you, Anna, which I don't see any reason why not to be. No one is listening at this point. <laughs> Three at best. All right. Like, I'm afraid of heights. I'm afraid of being poor. I'm afraid any, I'm afraid of death, diseases. Not super irrationally. Like, I'm not a crazy anxiety person, really, but definitely strongly. So even, even you, Anna, can achieve your dreams that you've already achieved on your show. That, let's be frank, is is better than mine, which is why I resent it so much. Thank no, you, your Anna. Show was really, your show was really important to me when I was figuring it out. Like I loved, um, I loved how you have designed it so that your personal passions are the editorial vision. Like you are making the <laughs> argument for things that you know might not be you know the the height of the the promotional tour but you're saying this is worthy of of paying attention to you know that's just because that no one ever worked for or with me until like (laughs) four years ago (laughs) even if it came out of desperation it's cool like it's nice to have like the moment of appreciation for um news radio you know or something like that like i can remember though like i think that's i think it's cool Thank you, Anna. It's nice because it's different. It's different. It's not when you're doing like pop culture coverage, you know, the thing that drives it is like what's the newest thing. And then you have, you know, 18 articles in the same week about the same actor. Like it's important to mix that up. Thank you, Anna. That's also why no one cares. Um, But I appreciate it. (laughs) I appreciate that. I appreciate that it meant something to you. I think if I can merely be a stepping stone to death, sex and money, then I have fulfilled fulfilled my role in this great universe. Um, okay, uh, I'm gonna go. Thank you. Have fun with your baby. It sounds like she sounds you. like a real great baby. She's a great baby. Thank you very much. That was Jesse Thorne talking to me for his podcast series about interviewing called The Turnaround. It's produced in collaboration with the Columbia Journalism Review, and you can find it wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to also check out Jesse's long-running podcast and radio show called Bullseye. There are links to all that Jesse's up to on our website at deathsexmoney.org.